You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Arelis Hernandez, a reporter for the Washington Post. As we mark Native American Heritage Month, joining me today are Kevin Gover, Undersecretary for the Smithsonian's Museums and Cultures, and Angeline Bully, author of the best-selling book, Firekeeper's Daughter. Her book will be adapted for a series uh, for President Barack and a Michelle Obama's production company, Higher Ground. Welcome to you both. Good to be Happy here. to be here. Well, let's start for both of you with your personal stories and reflections as we mark Native American Heritage Month. What parts of your heritage are you proudest of and what do you wish there was more awareness about? Well, I don't know that I could pick out a part that I'm proudest of. Um, uh, you know, I just am Native. I've always known I was Native. Um, there's nothing about the, the, the past uh, that, that I regret um, in, my, in my heritage, in my own life. There's plenty to regret. But, um, you know, it's just a fact of life for us. We are what we are. And, and uh, um, I've always been proud of, of my family and my tribe and, and, uh, and consider myself very much a part of that. I wouldn't be who I am without them. I would echo that. I'm very proud of my, my family, uh, my tribe, um, my cousins, and the strong indigenous women uh, that I meet in every community um, who are taking care of family and community as well. What do you wish there was more awareness about, about your, your, your heritage or your, or your background in, um, in, in Native communities across the U.S.? I've said this before, and it's that we are not relics of the past. We exist, uh, we lead dynamic, vibrant lives, and for people to think of uh, Native Americans only in the past tense does a huge disservice uh, to us. And um, in Firekeeper's Daughter, my book, I actually made an artistic decision to write in first person present tense, um, even though the story takes place in 2004, just to drive home that point of we are here. Well, Kevin, speaking of history, this year marks the 400th anniversary of the first Pilgrim Thanksgiving in 1621. Historians often say that what most Americans are taught or perceive about uh, that history does not actually match what happened. Can you help us sort through the biggest misconceptions there? Uh, well, I can certainly try. And of course, the historians are right. Um, first, uh, it, it, um, it appears, you know, it did happen. There was this day when the pilgrims and, and the Wampanoag people came together and enjoyed, uh, in, in fact, it was, a, it was for several days um, of feasting and, and um, that sort of thing. But it only happened once. It wasn't something that they decided, hey, let's do this every year. Um, but instead it, it happened that one time. And what we've done is build this entire mythology around, uh, around that event. Um, it disappeared from the record for over a century and, uh, and only re-entered upon the discovery of the, uh, the journal of, uh, of one of the pilgrim people um, where they made literally in a footnote 
um, an observation that the Indians came over and 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 we had these uh, these these days of feasting, and that was it. And and from that though, we created the entire what I call the Thanksgiving industrial complex, where um, you know it's very interesting uh, all the ritual around it. That uh, you know Thursday we feast, Friday uh, we shop, uh, Saturday and Sunday we watch football, and. Um, and so in some ways, so, you know, it, it's just something that, that, that happens in a culture. And what I want to point out is that is really one of the United States, America's origin myths, uh, that, um, that this day happened where the Indians and the pilgrims came together and there was this uh, wonderful um, giving of thanks and all of this racial harmony. And uh, when in fact, the, the truth is much more complex and so, uh, but but as mythology, it really works for us, right? We enjoy it. We we like the idea, um, but the idea was not the reality, and that works to the disadvantage of native people because we really become rendered imaginary, uh, and uh, and almost bit players in the drama of the creation of America, when in fact um, Indians were key players in the development of, uh, of, of the United States. Angeline, as an educator, are the histories of Native communities taught in schools the way they should be? No, generally, no. Um, I think that there are some promising things with states such as Montana, with Indian education for all, where teaching everybody accurate um, information about Native Americans benefits not only the Native students in the classroom and the community, but it benefits all students. Um, you know, every year, particularly around Thanksgiving uh, or Native American His uh, Heritage Month, we see, I don't know, on social media, I'll, I'll see video of some, you know, teacher acting foolishly, um, or ignorant, you know, um, ignorant classroom activities that perpetuate harmful stereotypes and inaccurate information. And the flip side is not to erase Native Americans, it's to make sure that our school teachers and leaders and staff have accurate information and that they understand the importance of representation, um, accurate materials, and that they make use of resources that are available, that are free to ensure that they're providing, um, you know, good, uh, respectful, culturally responsive images um, of Native Americans in the classroom. Well, Kevin, I, you've mentioned, you know, the mythology and sort of the, the narrative creation around Thanksgiving, but I wonder, is there anything else, uh, something specific from that you've come across in American education that you think is inaccurate or misleading when it comes to Native communities? I'm sure there are many, but oh. if you could think of a specific example. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Angeline put her finger on it. I mean, it's almost all wrong. And um, uh, just just to give you an example, I think uh, most of us in school, when we were when we were kids, learned about Squanto, the friendly Indian, who taught the Pilgrims how to grow corn. And um, there was actually a, a historical figure uh, named Tisquantum. And uh, but what people don't know is that um, Tisquantum had been captured and enslaved by an English fishing vessel captain, actually taken to Europe. 
in, in slavery and uh, somehow was redeemed and made his way back to, um, to his home um, in, in Massachusetts, only to discover that his village had been literally wiped out by smallpox. And, uh, and so Tisquantum uh, was, was a man without a country. His people were gone. Um, but interestingly enough, uh, when the Wampanoags and, and, the, uh, and the pilgrims began to engage, uh, Squanto was the go-between go because he spoke English. Now, I didn't know that. I didn't learn that until I was well into my 50s uh, because I learned the same story everybody else learned in grade school, that Squanto was this friendly Indian who you know, taught, the, taught, the, taught the pilgrims to grow corn. So, and that's just a small example of the actual richness behind these, these fairy tales that, that, that we tell in school and that the kids learn. And the kids aren't to be faulted, the teachers aren't even to be faulted because that's what they learned as well when the real story is actually so much better and, uh, and we should make the effort to really understand uh, the whole story. Given that, Angeline, you know, what is your advice to teachers who want to teach this history, a more accurate, broader, richer, as, as Kevin was saying, story of, of Native communities in the United States and North America? Sure. Access free resources. Uh, the best one I can think of is the American Indians in Children's Literature blog spot, which is uh, operated by Dr. Debbie Reese and uh, Dr. Jean Mendoza. And every year they come up with best books for children in all different uh, categories. Uh, they also provide reviews, which kind of shows you how to assess materials for, uh, about Native American uh, peoples. And they even have a special section on Thanksgiving and examples of, um, you know, some culturally appropriate uh, lessons and activities that classrooms can do. So it's a free resource, American Indians in Children's Literature blog spot. I also recommend books such as Lies My Teacher Told Me by Dr. James Lowen and um, Rediscovering Columbus is another book that I recommend. Thank you so much for that. I mean, Kevin, I, I want to move into sort of the, the diversity of Native communities. I know there are vast differences in culture and ethnicity and language among the federally recognized Indian nations across the U.S. How and why is it important to understand that diversity? Well, you know, Native, Native nations were, um, could be as different from one another as France is from China. Uh, they really were very distinct cultures, um, and the cultures in turn very much reflected um, the deep history and the places in, in which they resided. And so it is part of the human story to talk about how these cultures evolved and what they became and, and, and what they are now. So that uh, because it helps us understand whoever you are, it helps you understand yourself. The other part is, though, that Indians were, were, were acting upon the world after contact in ways that are vastly underestimated, so that 60% of the world's uh, current food crops were actually first created by native, native scientists, native agriculturalists here in North and South America. And so, uh, so it's important that we, that, that we should know these things 
um, in order to better understand why the world is the way it is now and uh, and what our place is in it. Well, Angeline, your your area is is now it's literature, right? What role can literature play uh, in this kind of understanding that Kevin is talking about and why? Uh, secondly, is representation so important? Uh, because as Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop has has is widely quoted, uh, books for children and teens can serve as windows, mirrors, and sliding glass doors by which we can see ourselves reflected, um, see into the experiences of an, another person, and through, you know, wonderful books, be able to step through uh, and experience uh, the lives of people who, who are very different from ourselves. And, um, you know, representation is important for having someone from that lived experience writing about it, I think you get a more truthful and nuanced portrayal. And that's very important. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's, you know, representation matters. And um, Dr. Debbie Reese has built on that windows, mirrors, and sliding glass doors analogy to also add that some of those windows need curtains. And I paid particular attention to what stories um, I should not tell, uh, particularly around ceremony uh, that are intended only for those in ceremony. And so each, you know, community has their own, uh, you know, guidelines or protocols for what we share, gladly share with others, and, and what we uh, keep to ourselves. And I love to say books are good medicine. Stories are good medicine. Stories are how we learn what it means to be Anishinaabe. Um, stories are how we can help others to understand uh, what it is to be Anishinaabe. Well, I wonder if you both could share with me the first time that you felt either through story, literature, media of other kinds, first felt represented. How old were you? What was it? And, and what did that feel like? Uh, Angeline, if you want to start. Sure. Um... Well, when I was 18, I first read a book that had a Native American main character. Um, the problem is that the representation was problematic. And so there was that feeling of, wait, Native American young woman is the main character in this book. I've never seen that before. And then the other thought was, but this book plays into harmful stereotypes of you know, the beautiful Indian maiden, the daughter of the chief, and, and things that just I knew uh, as, a, as a high school student was hokey and um, not culturally responsible. Um, I think, you know, Louise Erdrich, The Roundhouse, I, I could identify with that. Other books, Love Medicine uh, by her. Um, uh, she just, yeah, she's everything to me. <laughs> and Kevin, did you have any similar experiences? Yeah, well, I grew up on um, 60s television and movies. And so uh, I saw plenty of Indians uh, in the popular culture, um, but they bore no resemblance to the Indians that I knew. Uh, and and they were they were all around. Um, so it was a long time, really, before I began to see depictions of Indians that 
even represented them as 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 whole people, people with um, with ideas, people with uh, a sense of humor. So I think one of the first, though, would have to be the movie Little Big Man. And um, what was so fun about it is is the first movie I remember where the Indians were funny, and the Indians that I grew up with, the Indians that that are in my family and, and in my tribe, they are funny. And so to actually get to see them, you know, have a sense of humor was was really very meaningful to me. Um, you know, the literature at that time, uh, there there were uh, a couple of of, uh, of uh, giants. Um, one was a book uh, called Housemaid of Dawn, which actually was a, as I recall, um, received a Pulitzer Prize, and it was um, it was a, a novel. And frankly, it was a little bit over my head when I was a kid, but still, I got enough of it to really realize that um, uh, that that Indians could be could be represented in more complex ways and not speak monosyllabically and not just uh, you know always be wearing feathers and all of that. And, and it was um, uh, N. Scott Mamaday uh, was the author of uh, of that book. So it took a while, but but the uh, the end of the story is very happy. And we're seeing all these wonderful works that are coming out now um, in literature by people like Angeline uh, and like Louise Erdrich. Um, and we're beginning to show up better um, in the movies and in, uh, in uh, on television. There's a new television show on, um, I think it's on FX, uh, on Hulu uh, called Reservation Dogs. And, uh, and, and at least to, to Native people, it is hysterically funny and other people must appreciate it as well because uh, because it just got renewed for a second season. So so it's happening, but <clears throat> man, did it take a long time for Indians to become whole people in, in the popular culture. Well, you walked right into my next question, Kevin, <laughs> by referencing reservation dogs. And, and, and so I'll pivot to Angela. Angela, what's the significance of the success of shows like Reservation Dogs, where Native actors and writers are telling the story? It ties into, uh, there were a number of production companies that were interested in optioning my book, Firekeeper's Daughter, for either a feature film or series. And I would tell each of those companies the same thing. Representation is paramount, not just in front of the camera, but behind the camera, in the writer's room, and at every level of production. And so to see a show like Reservation Dogs that is all of that with representation um, and to have it be a uh, commercial success, um, I think it just shows that our stories are uh, wonderful, they're real, um, they're everything. And the importance of having representation, that series would not have happened um, without native creative talent. And so, you know, it's a view I feel strongly about, and I'm very thankful that um, President Barack Obama and Michelle Obama and the team at Higher Ground Productions also views that as paramount. As part of getting at this more accurate storytelling, Kevin, what role do institutions like the Smithsonian uh, have to ensure that these historical and contemporary narratives are told fairly, accurately, and truthfully? 
they have a very important role and a role in which they failed for, for most of the history of these institutions. Um, and it's a, it really is a stunningly simple proposition that if you're going to present material regarding native history and culture, you really ought to talk to the native people whose history and culture it is. Um, and yet that was not the rule uh, for until until really quite recently uh, in the last 30 years. Now, the, again, the good news is that that transition is taking place and uh, and no significant institution um, would uh, would think of uh, presenting Native American material except in consultation uh, with the appropriate Native American community. So um, so and, and remember that, you know, uh, outside the formal education system, uh, museums are one of the most important places of learning. Uh, it's done informally, it's done through a, a variety of media, um, but, but museums really are places of learning. And, and, and just as important, uh, museums remain among the most trusted institutions uh, in our culture. And, um, and, and that's, that, that puts a great burden of responsibility on us to be correct and to be accurate, but also to be um, collegial and collaborative with the people uh, who we're depicting in our museums. No, I grew up in the DC area, so visiting uh, the Smithsonian, the American Indian uh, Museum was just a huge part of my childhood. And it's amazing that it's the Latino Center is housed within the Museum of American Indian. So, you know, reaching out through the intersectionality. I wonder, uh, Kevin, sticking with you, how do you see the continued use of Indian mascot symbols and images? And is there is there, is a reassessment happening or are, are we still sort of too slow on that on that path? Uh, we've been too slow forever. Um, but it is happening. Uh, it's happening one by one. Uh, you know, every week we read about another mascot at some high school um, somewhere in the country um, deciding that, 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 that the mascot needs to go. Uh, it was a very big deal when the Washington football team finally uh, gave in and changed its name. Uh, the Cleveland baseball team has followed. I think they, they literally are changing their name formally today. Um, there are others uh, in professional sports, the Kansas City football team, the Chicago hockey team, uh, the Atlanta baseball team. Um, they continue to resist. They continue to pretend that they are honoring Native Americans, but just watch one of those games and observe the conduct and ask yourself, if you were Native, would you be honored by what those fans are doing? So they've got to go uh, and they will go. It's just a matter of time. Angeline, how does such racial stereotyping affect the social identity and self-esteem of Native youth? You worked for years with with uh, Native children in the school system. What, tell us what you know. What are the perception? How does that affect their self-esteem? To see yourself portrayed as a caricature or the worst, you know, the most extreme stereotype, either as this noble. Um, wise person or the savage, you know, that whole noble savage dichotomy, um, you know, it does a disservice. I was a student at Central Michigan University. Their mascot still is the Chippewa. And um, I remember taking a group of students from the nearby reservation to a football game. And this was in the 1980s. And just the look on those students' faces 
when they saw people acting foolish. Um, and I, I just, I don't believe there's any place in sports or school education that justifies the use of Native American people and communities as a mascot. And I think the interesting, oh, I was going to say the interesting thing is when um, those schools that are like cling to that identity, that mascot identity, and it's like they might find one native friend that says, oh, I don't care. Yeah, I like that, that's pretty cool. And it's like, no, it negates all of the other information and studies that have been done that show native mascots are harmful. Thank you so much for that, uh, Angela. And Kevin, I wanna sort of pivot to, we're running out of time very quickly, uh, to Deb Haaland, who became Interior Secretary. What does it mean to have increased Native American representation in Congress and at the highest levels of government? It means everything. You know, uh, first there is the reality of political power. Now there is a Native person who wields enormous power, um, not just over Indian affairs, but over uh, the national parks and the, uh, the, the wildlife refuges, uh, all of the lands managed by the Bureau of Land Management, uh, the dams operated by the Bureau of Reclamation. So that, that, is, a, that is a fact that, that having that power in the hands of someone who has our sensibilities, um, it, it can make a real difference. Uh, but second and equally important, it, it shows, you know, we need for our kids to be seeing themselves in these places of power uh, and in these uh, places, whether that be cultural power, economic power, political power, social power, whatever it may be. And so having a reservation dogs on TV and having uh, a, a native woman serve as secretary of interior um, really does matter because uh, then Indian kids can see, you know, I can, I can, I can be that. I can. I can do things that um, that um, in 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 my world seem a little bit beyond my reach. Um, but and so it it's just it's great for the kids, and that that's why I was so pleased. We she she symbolizes something um, incredibly important in in these communities. Angeline, you have uh, three children. Is that right? Uh, yes. Is that correct? I wonder if any of them are on TikTok talking about representation and native TikTok. Have you all <laughs> tuned in at all or seen, you know, some of the trends and, and the education that's taking place on these apps? Well, yeah, my daughter's very opinionated about social media. And I'm proud to tell her that I am on TikTok. I have a video that's gone viral and um, it talks about my you know, journey to publication, 37 years long of from the spark of my story to publication and all the phenomenal things, wonderful things that have happened since then, uh, thanks to my publisher, Macmillan. I had to get in the TikTok question. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm so proud of that video. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, we're, we're running up to the end of the show, and I wanted to, to give you both a chance uh, to answer this question. You know, how can this month be a time of reflection on the contributions of Native Americans in an enduring way all year round? Uh, Kevin, if you would like to start. 
Yeah, it's it's a good question. Um, you know, we always shudder a bit about Native American Heritage Month because, as Angeline was pointing out, it's also an opportunity uh, to be caricatured. And uh, and certainly in the schools I grew up, you know, when teachers were having us make construction paper headbands and feathers and using Quaker Oats uh, uh, boxes for drums and that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, uh, just really to seek out, um, and it's becoming increasingly available, but seek out um, credible sources about Native history, whether it be a museum. Uh, I've seen a couple of interesting specials on PBS this month uh, that, that tell true stories about Native America. Um, check out the literature, both for children and for adults. And uh, just, just, you know, make an effort to really educate yourself and, and don't settle for, um, for the for the cheap stereotype, don't you know? Don't think you know about Indians until you've really made the effort to know. And we will continue on our side to produce material um, that that really helps the country understand uh, who we were and who we are. Angeline, you want to take a stab at that one as well? Sure. If you've never picked up a book with a Native American author, please during Native American Heritage Month take that opportunity to experience uh, one of the wonderful books written by these amazing Native American and First Nations authors. Um, a couple I can name off the bat, uh, Therese Marie Bertineau, um, Heartberries by Teresa uh, Mayotte. Um, of course, everyone knows about There There by Tommy Orange. Um, Darcy Little Badger, Dr. Darcy Little Badger has two books out. They're phenomenal. Um, I'll post links on my social medias, but just support indigenous authors because the ones that I know of now, we're writing tribal specific stories from our own lived experience. And that that makes all of the difference because the representation I read when I was 18 it was general and it was stereotypical. Well, thank you both. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. But thank you, Angeline Bully and Kevin Gover for speaking with me today for Native American Heritage Month. We hope to have you back. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.